At AGI, we take grain bin safety seriously. With Bin Manager, from the convenience of your smartphone, you can know the condition of stored grain without having to climb a ladder or stairs to monitor temperature and moisture. AGI Bin Manager is fully automated, meaning you can trust that grain is safe and in condition without returning to the bin to turn on or off fans and heaters. With advanced algorithms to optimize fan and heater controls, you can be confident that your hard-earned harvest will be in condition when it is time to sell. Find AGI Bin Manager at aggrowth.com digital. Hi, I'm Caitlin Dubin, and this is the Rural Woman Podcast. I'm a first-generation farmer who married into agriculture. Born and raised in a city, I was so unfamiliar with where my food came from, but I was determined to figure it out. Through my journey into agriculture, I saw women who were strong but humble, often taking a back seat. To me, these women were leaders who deserved a seat at the table. I created the Rural Woman Podcast to share the voices of women in an industry whose stories often went untold. The rural entrepreneurs who live and breathe their work, full of grit and pride. We come here to share our stories, to be in community with each other, to be challenged and inspired, but most importantly, to be celebrated and to be heard. We may not all live, farm, ranch or homestead the same, but we are all connected. We are rural women and our stories are worthy of being told. Hey everyone, welcome to this week's episode of the Rural Woman Podcast. This week, you'll meet Catherine Laframboise. Catherine is a rookie fiber farmer living on Treaty One land. Alongside her husband, she tends to 20 acres and nearly 100 lives varying from ducks and geese to horses and alpacas. Catherine is wildly passionate about community and embodies that as a middle school teacher and graduate student. She is constantly learning to be an advocate for equity through education and sustainable environmental stewardship. She appreciates and strives to support local any chance she gets. Catherine is in the middle of her child-centered animal-assisted therapy certification and is excitedly planning workshops for the 2022 year. One of her favorite sayings is that she is farming for joy. I am so grateful to be able to share Catherine's story with you today. And speaking of farming for joy, Catherine and I recorded an extended episode of this episode titled Just That farming for joy. So if you are a patron at tier 10 or higher, that episode is available for you on your podcast player of choice. And if you would like to hear this episode, as well as all of the other extended episodes and my solo show, maybe you can relate. You can head on over to patreon.com slash the rural woman podcast or head to the link in today's show notes to become a patron through Patreon. One other quick mention before we get to Catherine's interview is depending on what time of year you are listening to this episode, you might be smack dab in the middle of field meal season, which when I was thinking of what is field meal season, I came up with this definition. Field meal season is the season between when the ground thaws 
and the first snowflake flies, where you eat away from your table to help feed others at theirs. Isn't that clever? I was pretty proud of myself for that. But anyways, (laughs) if you too are a field meal superhero, I have created a free resource for you uh, titled Tools, Tips, and Tricks to Help Make Your Field Meals a Little Less Stressful. So you can get that free downloadable resource over on my website, wildrosefarmer.com forward slash field meal guide, or head to the link in today's show notes by scrolling down on your podcast player of choice to get that free resource in your email inbox. Without further ado, my friends, let's get to this week's episode with my friend, Catherine. Catherine, welcome to the Rural Woman Podcast. I am very excited to chat with you today. I feel like it's just two girlfriends having a cup of coffee. (laughs) I couldn't agree more, Caitlin. I'm so excited. For the listeners who are unfamiliar with you, Catherine, Introduce yourself and tell us how you got your start in agriculture. Oh, wow. Okay. Well, I'm Catherine Laframboise. I'm the owner of the Raspberry Roost, a farm located on Treaty 1 territory. I currently am more of a fiber farmer. (laughs) So what that means is I raise alpacas, sheep, and rabbits for their fur, not their fur, but their wool, fleece, Um, And then we have that usually made into like yarn. Super exciting. How did I get started? I was a city kid, (laughs) born and raised, and have always dreamt of living in the country, taking care of the land, taking care of animals. And my partner, who's now my husband at the time, I had always kind of put that bug in his ear about wanting to leave the city and he was he was game he thought it was going to be a life of dirt biking (laughs) but he didn't realize my big (laughs) plans so I've been out here now this will be our fifth summer coming up that we've lived out here but this is probably my like first full year of really great farm activities how did you get the name of your farm I've always been curious I love this. Okay, so the Raspberry Roost, so my last name and my husband's last name is La Framboise, which is the raspberry in French. So I wanted to pay a little bit of, I guess, homage to that as a family name. And then Roost, to me, is a place that's safe. So a place where you can relax, feel good, it's welcoming, a place to stay And I love alliteration. So like what better than two R's stuck together at the raspberry roost? I love that. I'm so glad I asked that because I didn't know that about you, Catherine and Andre, who thought he was going to live a life of dirt biking. Um. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, a little different, a little different, more chores, but. uh. I would say that would be my husband's ideal farm as well. If you could just, you know, do a little bit of the work and then be able to ride your dirt bike around on the farm. But alas, there's always more work to be done. So you mentioned that it was something that you always wanted to do. You wanted to move out to the country and tend to the land. What are some of your first memories of growing up and food and where that came from? And where did this love of the land come from? Oh, that's a deep dive. I grew up with my mom and my two sisters. And 
even though, you know, it was, it was pretty hard sometimes growing up for us. Um, my mom always encouraged me that I could do anything if I put my mind to it. I was always a kiddo who spent all of my days outside. We had a little forest nearby our house, actually, which has been since bulldozed for development, which is heartbreaking. But I would go into that forest for hours. And, you know, we had rules about when I'd have to come home. It was before cell phones, right? And I would just play for hours in the forest. I'd sit quietly, listen to the birds, try to feed deer. And I just knew that there seemed to be something outside the city. Like I knew that I had to leave it to find it. And like I said, my mom was really encouraging. And so I remember I was obsessed with horses and I don't know how that happened (laughs) because I didn't have a horse or really connections to horses but my mom knew that I loved horses a lot. So for most of my time growing up, we didn't have a car. But when we would have access to one, there was a stable that was near my house. It was like one of those like farms that was like at the time on the outskirts of the city and then the city built around it. So it became this like urban stable. And so the owner, when we had a chance, would let my mom bring me to just like come in and just like pet the horses and feed them a carrot. And I used to like draw pictures for the horses and then I would like drop them off. And so I I don't know how many times I got to do that, but it's a memory for me that's just like burned into my mind. And no matter what I was going through as a kid, animals weren't there to make judgments, right? They just kind of accept you for where you're at. And that's why I knew for sure. I'm like, I just, I need a life of animals because they just bring out the best in people And I watched as, you know, developments go up, which I understand, but like, I just knew that I wanted to be a bit more, I don't know if protector is the right word, but I wanted to care for land. And I think if I knew that it was like within my care that like I could help dictate what happens to it. And I've always felt, yeah, really, really caring for animals and people. And I have these like, big dreams and I'm just on the cusp of that now. <laughs> you sure are. Oh, making me misty over here and we just got started, Catherine. <laughs> I love that memory that you have of you and the horses and knowing that and knowing who you are now kind of puts all of these things together for me. So tell us more about what you raise on your farm. You have I have to say, one of the funnest farms that I think I get to view on the Instagram. So tell us everything that you raise there from the two-legged to the four-legged. Well, the least exciting is, I guess, oh, I guess two-legged actually could be birds. So I thought maybe you meant myself and Andre. I was like, we're the least exciting. Just kidding. I I do raise us as well, or we take turns raising each other. But yeah, we have a lot going on here. And I think it's a little bit of a a reflection of my brain. (laughs) You know, if anyone's listening to this who's a dreamer or a planner, you don't have to have everything on your farm. So please don't listen to me and think like, I'm going to do exactly that because it's hard work and not every farm needs to look the same. So on our gigantic, diverse farm, we have our first animals were goats. Caitlin, goats. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. That's why we're friends. (laughs) I took two cute little goats in 
I remember, so like we bought this place and there was nothing on it except for this gigantic weird box that I live in that was built as a mechanic shop. We can talk about that another time. But I remember scrambling. We built this like little shed for these two goats. We put fencing in for the first time, made so many mistakes, so many, and brought these two little goaties home. And I was so excited. So that was Daisy and Cora. We still have them. Although I have gone the opposite direction of goats. So we also raise alpacas and sheep. And I remember the day that we brought them all home at once. So we brought home two sheep and four alpacas and one trailer at once. And that was an exciting moment to just see all of these animals just like come like running off a trailer. And I was like, oh my God, like, what are we doing? But that was carefully planned. Like I had researched a bit more about what we wanted to do. And that was do some fiber farming. So I'm, I was really interested in natural textiles, materials, and what that means for sustainability and the environment. And that's a whole other story. So save that one for later. We also have chickens and ducks and geese. Again, like, what am I doing here? Tips for people, house them separately. Please don't keep all of them in one barn because you're asking for a hurricane. And then we also have rescue horses here. So over the years, I've taken in horses through rescue. Sometimes we've had them, I'll like rehome them to other folks. But for the most part, I guess it's almost like a sanctuary because like when we take them in, they don't really leave. Or so far, that's been what's happened. Oh, yes. We also have our Angora rabbits. That's something that's really exciting that they're a fiber animal for us. And can't forget about George. Our llama. <laughs> and I think I think that's everything. I've probably accumulated all the possible species and dogs and cats. <laughs> and you forgot the tortoise. Oh my gosh, Valerie. Yes. <laughs> oh, Valerie. Yes. Okay. To, to be fair, I'd like put her in a different category because um, she's going to come with me to school. But yes, I have a tortoise. Like you from A to Z, like you have... So many critters there and they are all so unique and obviously they all serve a different purpose on your farm. Talk to me more about these rescue horses and obviously you have a love of horses, but what made you jump in and decide that this is what you were going to do on your farm? So I think sometimes social media is responsible, (laughs) which I'm thankful for because Our first horse, Willow, I met a really good friend through her. And again, it was a Facebook post that I saw that was like, I guess it was somebody at the time starting a rescue. And so Willow had just been saved at the auction. She was a horse that, you know, no one was going to bid on and she was going to go for meat, which again, that's like a whole other conversation, not making any judgments about that at all. But I do try to give horses a soft place to land if there's a chance. And so I met Jen, who's actually, she runs the Good Place um, Farm and Rescue. And that's how I got started with Willow. And then pretty much every horse actually now that I have has come through the Good Place, (laughs) which is either a horse that they've had at the rescue or we've kind of teamed up when we go to auctions And we take in um, horses straight from the auction, which again is kind of, I don't want to say it's risky, but 
I do reflect on the fact that like, I've been a beginner these last couple of years with horses and, you know, horses with unknown backgrounds and not a lot of training. It can be dangerous. Isn't the right word, but it, it can be tough. And so I feel like I've learned a lot and I would encourage folks if they're thinking about, you know, getting into horses, whether that's rescue or not, just make sure you have really good mentors around and know that you're going to be constantly trying to improve like your your horsemanship. Yeah, it's, you know, it's funny. I I myself didn't grow up directly around horses. Cousins of mine had them and I always thought, oh, I was so jealous of them. They had horses and I thought it was so great. And they're a lot of work and like just the amount of care and effort that needs to go into raising these animals. I think there's a lot of people who don't understand that when they get into, you know, having horses. And then unfortunately they do end up at auctions in different places because whether it's their mannerisms or the people just can no longer care for them, whatever that may be. So yeah, I really think, well, this could be said for any animal that you're bringing onto your farm. I know it's really exciting to have all of the animals, as do you, but they all need their own set of rules and care. And, you know, there's always learning along the way, but having a basic understanding of what you're bringing onto your farm is so important. Yeah. And just being prepared to constantly learn because you'll think that you have a handle on something and and you might have a basic handle, but those those handles change <laughs> and you have to be flexible. And I, I do, I take it really seriously when I choose to bring an animal into our lives because I am now responsible. And with the horses, especially Caitlin, like you just spoke to this, you know, if something happens one day where, you know, these horses are now on their own because I can't care for them, if they're if they're not properly trained with good manners, they have a really low chance of getting picked up again by a family. So it's kind of in your best interest if you are somebody who works with horses or wants to have horses to make sure that those basics are there because it gives your horse kind of a fighting chance if they ever end up in a situation where they could be at an auction. And again, I, I realize horses end up at auctions for, for several reasons and auctions have existed for years and years and years. And some people have positive memories, some people have negative memories. And I think at the end of the day, if you can set your horse up for a positive future, that's the most important thing. Yeah, absolutely. Well, and I want to talk about a learning moment. And I actually had one with you. And I actually shared this story, I think it was a week or two ago in a meeting that I had with someone. And we were talking about how online communities are so great because you can learn so many different things. And, you know, you can learn through other people's mistakes and when they share them and when they don't and things. And I think it was last summer, Catherine, you sent me the most kind message on Instagram about something that I was doing wrong with my goats, with my kitty and Babs. Do you remember this? Yes. <laughs> and I have to say that the way that you did this has influenced me on how I speak to others and how I, you know, if I see something that I can help with to do it. So for the backstory, for the listeners who have no idea what I'm rambling on about, last year I was doing some clippings in my garden and all of my leftover clippings I would give to the goats and they would eat them all up and they were so excited to eat them. One of the things that they loved eating was my tomato clippings of my leaves and things like that. And Catherine sent me the most kind message to let me know 
that those were not good for goats to eat. And I can't tell you how thankful I was for her. And, you know, I hadn't been feeding them that long to them. Nobody else said anything. And I'm sure there was other people on there thinking like, what a dummy, she's going to kill her stupid goats. But <laughs> you sent such a kind message. And so I just wanted to thank you publicly for that. Aww. Caitlin, that's that's awesome. You know, I, I think it's important because like you never know where someone else is coming from, right? Like, and I don't think, you know, necessarily that there's always like a right or wrong. But I think if you if you maybe see something, right? I I think it's okay to speak up, but maybe I think it's almost like Consent isn't maybe the right word, but like you want to see if they're open to hearing something. Like I think that's how I would try to approach it. And I can't believe you remember that memory. But like, yeah, just seeing if someone's like, okay, maybe accepting some advice. And I think you have to be careful about like the tone and are you being judgmental? Because it doesn't feel good for folks when they feel like they're maybe being attacked. Like it's easy to feel defensive. We've all been there. But if we can like, if I, as the person who's approaching someone, can help like ease their guard to maybe make something better for themselves and whoever, or if it's an animal better, like I think that's really great. <laughs> so this is such a cool memory, Caitlin. Yeah. Aww. I'm just thinking in my head right now, like maybe we can make like a PDF template of like how to approach people, like just insert things here. Maybe we can do that. We can talk about that after. But <laughs> yes, love it. It was just honestly, it was so helpful. And you yourself, I know, have been so helpful in, you know, teaching people. I know you say that you're a rookie farmer and you're still learning, but you do such a wonderful job of sharing what you learn with people and the struggles that you've had and the accomplishments that you have too, because I think those are obviously just as important to share. I want to talk about the sustainability piece on your farm. You, you know, did your research and got into the fiber farming so you could have your sheep and your cute fluffy angora bunnies. They are to die for and they have the greatest hair. Like I'm I have hair envy of them. Tell us more about the process for you with your animals and your fiber animals. Tell us about, you know, the yearly process of taking their fiber and what you're turning it into. Right. And again, like if, if you're listening to this and you're like, what are these people talking about? Just know that I had zero idea about this either. And I'm still learning. <laughs> so you can start anywhere. But I think I'm currently building this life that is so woven with things that I love and I'm passionate about. And it's just really neat to reflect on this right now. So as I talk about the fiber farming, it's cool to see how this is all connected. So I, I love fashion. I love style. And I really appreciate like natural fibers, especially if they can be made locally. And so that's kind of how I, I got thinking about the fiber community and also, if you are listening to this and you are not connected to a fiber community in your area, see if they exist because I've met some of the most incredible people. I'm thinking of like the Longway Homestead, Fiola Farm, like just amazing people that have been so helpful in my journey. So about the fiber, animals that grow wool are carbon sequestering. So they take grazable area, so land that's growing, 
eventually reaches a point where there's not too much actual growth happening. So the amount of carbon they're storing kind of pauses. So then you take an animal that grows wool or fleece to graze over that, and the carbon then actually becomes stored within the fiber. So that's like how it grows. And so then your land is now growing back all the grasses and that becomes again an area where carbon can store and so it's just this really awesome cycle where you know you're tending to the land in an appropriate way these animals are loving you know loving their lives living the best life and then you shear them once a year for the sheep alpacas and llama and then that gets turned into yarn or other usable fibers like some people do felting some people use it for bedding, insulation. You can use it in gardening. I know there's lots of gardeners on here. <laughs> and our wool mill that we use is within 60 kilometers from here. So it's a pretty cool process to have everything done so locally. And same thing, our feed is either on farm, so we have grazable land, or our hay is also within I guess probably that 75 kilometer mark as well. So to have this like whole process be so local, is just wild to me. And I mostly service our local community for fiber. So I don't do a ton of shipping, nothing against it, but I try to keep it for now as local as possible, just because that that's what makes sense in my head to kind of keep up that cycle. But at the same time, I know that you can't solve every battle. So Again, if you're listening to this and you're thinking about like all of the issues you want to tackle, I think even tackling one issue is really important. So, you know, if you have a local process and you're ending up having to ship it to customers, like I get it. So don't, no judgment there. (laughs) Yeah. Well, and like you said, you can only do so many things. If we think about everything that is happening in the world today and want to fix or change or, you know, help in however many ways you can think of, it's really exhausting. And to kind of take that breath and slow down and what is the one thing that I can do today that will help something or someone. And like you said, keeping it local for you is something that is meaningful to you and your operation. And, you know, those people local to you are super lucky because they get all of the great goods off of all of your cute little critters. So I have a question about the Angora rabbits. How often do you shear them or what's the process like for getting their fiber? Yeah. So we get to shear them approximately four times a year. And so some, okay, so Angora rabbits have this like gorgeous cloud-like fiber. Seriously, like get your hands on some. I can hook you up. So they, they, yeah, they grow this like really long wool and they're adorable. But again, warning, it's a lot to maintain. So if you're thinking like, oh, they're so cute, but you're not going to have attention, like time to pay attention to their grooming care, then please don't get into them. (laughs) But yeah, so we shear them personally, which is like, again, taking either hand scissors or clippers, electric clippers, and kind of shaving that fur off. There's no pain involved. We don't like hold them down. They just kind of sit on the table while we shear them. And it's a pretty fun process. Can I say fun now? It's been stressful when we started, but now it's getting fun. It's kind of a funny scene because like we use our dining room table. We just put like a little towel down and then like it's just me and my husband like shearing a rabbit. Like I I can't even 
tell you that I dreamed of that when I was a kid or in high school, like on a Friday night, just like shearing a rabbit on my dining room table with my husband, like, look, dear, we're doing so good. Just, I don't know. It's just wild. But some people do hand pluck angoras. That's not cruel. It's like they naturally shed. So you're just picking those like little tufts like that they come off your dog. (laughs) So there's that method too, but every angora can be different. And like I said, I like, I have hair envy of them. It's, they're so fluffy and so cute. Growers have a lot to consider when it comes to storing grain. Are you getting the most out of your on-farm grain storage? Could an aeration model help to better determine fan, heater, or dryer needs? And what is the ROI if you installed a bin manager system to remote monitor and control in-bin grain conditioning? At AGI, we want you to ask the tough questions about how Bin Manager allows growers like you to know exactly what is happening inside your bins without climbing a ladder or stairs, or how you can benefit from remotely monitoring your grain temperature and moisture from a smartphone, or how fully automated fans and heaters can provide peace of mind all season long. Contact an AGI representative today for a free on-farm smart storage assessment. Find AGI Bin Manager at aggrowth.com digital. That's aggrowth.com digital. So you mentioned that this is your fifth summer on the farm, and this is kind of like your first full year as a a farmer and doing things on the farm. What have been some of the biggest struggles that you've faced over the last five years in growing your operation? That's a great question. There's the web of them. So again, like keep in mind while you watch people have success, there's definitely mistakes, there's issues, there's problems to solve, and sometimes they're not solvable. But some of the biggest problems would be access to finances to grow because we're sort of in this like interesting market where we're not going to necessarily have access to like loans maybe to build our operation and we didn't really have anything saved before we moved here it's been a bit of a challenge to grow when financially we we didn't have access to like a lot to grow so the growth has been slow and i think that's also positive because we've had to work save at it. But like, again, that takes time and that's fine because I don't think we could have grown any faster. And as I reflect back, I think we actually did grow pretty fast. (laughs) Weather has been one of our biggest problems that has shown, especially this past year, that our plans that we thought were like, hey, we've got a handle on this. Like our infrastructure is really good. This winter showed us that it's not and we have to be prepared even better. So if you think that things are perfect, on your farm or wherever you are, just know that that could absolutely change. And how are you going to be flexible to that? Another problem for me would be the fact that I don't always have a lot of time. (laughs) So I do live a very full life as a full-time middle school teacher. I'm a grad student and I'm also trying to run a farm and business. So sometimes I back myself into corners where I run out of time. For things and that can present in a couple of ways either you know self-doubt of not feeling like I'm doing a good enough job or not having enough time to do the things that I really enjoy and I think that's something important to speak to because 
obviously there are going to be tough seasons where you do have to work really hard, but make sure you're finding that balance or finding moments because I don't actually think balance exists. That's a lie. It's a myth. But just make sure you're finding moments of joy in whatever you're doing. And if you have to look too hard for joy, then maybe you need to reevaluate. That's very fair. And you had mentioned, you know, the flexibility of it. And that's something I know I struggled with, you know, Though I may be physically flexible, I am not mentally flexible. Uh, And that is (laughs) the line that I used quite often coming into this. You know, I might be able to do some yoga and some wonderful things like that. But, you know, unless you can be flexible in your mind and your thoughts and everything, it can be a big struggle, especially when you come from a structured background, such as even a standard school year. I worked in post-secondary education. We know what our years are. They're September to June basically. And then you have your summers off. And, you know, when you come into farming, there is no such thing as a summer off. And there's basically no such thing as a day off unless you have put in the work to put in the plans in place for things to be taken care of on your behalf and all of the things. So I want to talk more about your full-time job as a middle school teacher and, you know, where this tortoise is going to end up. Cause I think that's pretty cool. Your students are pretty lucky to get a tortoise in their classroom. So how long have you been teaching for? Okay. So I think it's been eight years, <laughs> which feels wild to say. And again, on this beautiful process of reflection, I'm really proud of how far I've come as an educator and how being an educator or what that means to be an educator has changed for me. In these eight years, I've reflected a lot on what it means to be a teacher. And for me, uh, especially now as a grad student and learning a lot about, you know, the pedagogy philosophy behind these systems that are in place, I don't believe in a lot of them. (laughs) So it feels sometimes strange to be a teacher, but at the end of the day, I'm here to support children. And by support, I mean, I want them to know that they can be whoever they want to be and they can change and they can try things and they can make mistakes and they can grow. So like, that's what I do on a daily basis is just help guide kiddos. And they also guide me in extraordinary ways. And so I've always known that I I liked working with people and I liked working with animals. And so, you know, I think a lot of us had felt that pressure being in high school. Oh my gosh, I need to go do something. I guess I'll go to university. (laughs) We know how that system works. And luckily for me, I did feel a bit of a calling to become a teacher. And I think that's because I had some really great teachers. And I also had some moments where I did not have great supporting adults who were in a teacher role. (laughs) And so I thought about like, how can I help in this process? And I was like, okay, I'm going to, I'm going to become one, you know, with two university degrees. That's what we dictate as a teacher. So I followed that process. And now again, it's been eight years. I'm a year and a half into grad school for education. And a lot has changed for me again, to be thinking about like, what is a teacher? What are these systems? And realizing what we are complicit in and reinforcing in other systems. And how does that fit into, you know, my farm life? (laughs) I love what, again, animals and land have to show us. 
And if you've ever had the chance to even observe how children or adults are when they're outside, you know, interacting with the land, engaging with the land, engaging with animals, it just becomes different. And if you don't know what I'm talking about, I highly suggest you go you know, go sit at a park or go find a farm <laughs> and, and watch how, how people are living and interacting. I think it's always interesting for people who grew up in agriculture and grew up around animals to see people who didn't and see their reaction to animals and things. It's funny, even my hu- my husband and I were able to get off of the farm and get away. We t- took a hike and every single dog that walked past, I was so excited, said hello to the dog, all of these things. I grew up with dogs, like it wasn't a thing that I didn't have, but it's just my love for animals. And he was like, do you have to say hello to every dog you see? And I said, Well, yes, yes, I do. But seeing people around animals that don't get to be around them very often, it brings me so much joy, like for people to come out and just see them. You know, it doesn't even need to be in a full capacity, like a tour or anything like that. Just being able to see them, like, and like you said, go to a petting zoo or go somewhere and just watch people. Because I just think it's so interesting the reaction that people have and whether that's joy or they could have some fear around animals as well. But just the emotion that comes from them, I think it's really deep. And you actually are taking a course for child-centered animal-assisted therapy. So tell us more about that course and what drove you to participate in that. Yeah, so I'm really excited you mentioned that because I feel like when I discovered this course, I guess it was last year I started. So when I had discovered it, I thought like, wow, this could be the thing that actually kind of helps me connect the dots between my farm life and my kind of educational background. And so it is labeled as child-centered, just to inform our, our listeners. However, that doesn't mean you can't work with other age groups. So it's child-centered because you get to learn the basics about how your brain develops. Because once you really have an understanding on kind of the science behind that, it really helps you understand how people sometimes are the way that they are, even into adulthood. So if you're thinking about like, oh, you're like, oh, I don't know if I want to work with children, you can still take these courses and work with adults. And so I believe that, again, I've already said this several times, but animals, you know, I think are the greatest teachers and whether that is bringing out joy or like you mentioned, Caitlin, like that vulnerability aspect, right? It doesn't always have to feel positive or good immediately, but all of those feelings have a place for us. And again, animals are just so good at bringing that out for us and then helping us they, they guide us through those things too. So not only do they like show us them, but then they help us deal with it. And so I envisioned, and this is why Valerie is now joining our classroom, our little Herman's tortoise. When you get to see children light up and feel care and empathy, a lot of people, again, they say, oh, you can't teach empathy. I 100% believe you can teach empathy. <laughs> and, you know, Valerie's going to be a big part of that. For us going forward, again, tortoises live for a very, very long time. So as cool as they are, don't go out and buy one because it will outlive you. (laughs) 
So yeah, Val's going to have a good time in our classroom, you know, learning about her care. Animals are also great. Like they're sometimes like an amazing living metaphor for us, right? Like Valerie has this beautiful shell that can, you know, withstand a lot of harm. But at the same time, you know, on her insides, she's soft and needs that care. And her story as well, she's a bit of a rescue tortoise. So when she was young, she didn't have the proper care. So she kind of grew a little differently. And so her differences in itself are a connection for folks. Sure, a lot of us can relate to, you know, something going differently for us, or maybe we look different or something's different about us. And like to be able to connect to an animal that's not going to make a judgment, they're not going to make fun of you. Like they're just such a safe place. So animals' stories are also really important. It's not just them as a being, like it's everything about them, which is just wild. That is so good. So with the course that you're taking, what are your future plans for your farm and incorporating your training into your farm? So Caitlin, this is again a really good timely question for me because I sometimes, I think, shy away from my own abilities and skills. And again, it's really easy to do that for yourself. And so this this week I'm on spring break as a teacher. And it's like, I have written this down a hundred times to sit down this week and like really get some more things down on paper. Because I think as soon as you write it out, it becomes even more real. So again, if you have thoughts or dreams, write them out. The worst thing that you do is crumple it up and throw it into the fire, right? Doesn't mean it has to happen, but I think you owe it to yourself to take those steps. So I do have, I have a lot of different dreams, Caitlin, and I haven't fully narrowed it down yet. And I don't think you necessarily have to narrow something down, but I do envision this coming year starting some workshops for folks either that are communications-based So how to communicate, you know, in a positive, safe way with humans, but also like letting animals kind of show us that. And the really cool thing I like about this specific certification is that they do treat the animals as colleagues, as coworkers. They're not a tool. And I think that distinction for me was really important because it's more, it's more like equitable, right? Like we're on the same page. And so, yeah, I I think... I want to help folks feel the best they can be. I want them to experience joy. I want them to, you know, have safe ways to experience, you know, vulnerability and how we work through that. I would love to keep working with, you know, kiddos on the farm and teaching them maybe more about, you know, the fiber process. Yeah, I envision like, again, Caitlin, like I have to have to write some of these these bigger things out for myself so that they become a bit more real because I think sometimes there is definitely a fear there for myself of like can I do this and again I think that's important to acknowledge like I I don't have all the answers I don't know if something's going to be right or perfect perfect doesn't exist (laughs) so yeah I, I just know that I'm I I will have folks here and we're going to be having you know really positive times with the farm for sure Well, and I cannot wait to see what you come up with, with your pen and paper and all of these big dreams. And I just know that whatever comes of it, knowing you and knowing what you're capable of, it's going to be great no matter what it is. So I'm looking forward to following you along on that journey. Oh, thanks, Caitlin. My last question for you 
is what is the most rewarding part about being a farmer for you? To have moments of like absolute stillness in a way that you just can't experience anywhere else. There's just this moment where, you know, again, you work so hard, regardless of what kind of farm life you're living. There's so much hard work. There's, there's tears that are spent on so many things. There's really positive, joyous moments. There's late nights, there's early mornings. And in between all of those things, there's always these moments where you get to kind of like sit back and just take it all in. And I think those moments are absolutely rewarding on my toughest days, on my best days. I try to make time for that to just kind of reflect and see this, see all of this life, whether that's plants, whether that's animals, just kind of like thriving all around you is a really humbling experience. And you get to realize that, you know, yes, you're important, but like there's so much in this world and there's a responsibility there, which I think some people might fear, but at the same time, like that is the greatest opportunity in the entire world. Absolutely. With that responsibility comes the opportunity to do great things, which you're doing. And I'm so happy to call you a friend. So thank you so much for sharing your story with us today, Catherine. For the listeners who would like to connect with you after the show, where can they find you online? Yeah. So currently I'm mostly active on Instagram. You can find me under raspberry on the prairie and on Facebook, I'm the raspberry roost. And we do have a website in the works, which is the raspberryroost.com, but there's nothing there yet. But again, it's just a beautiful opportunity ready to, ready to open. (laughs) Perfect. And I will link all of those in the show notes, as well as some of the other resources that you mentioned along the way. And thank you again so much for sharing your story. I really appreciate it. Thank you for taking the time to ask me and thank you to everyone who took the time to listen. I'm really excited to be able to share some of this and reach out if you ever feel like chatting. Happy to chat, happy to listen. And again, Caitlin, a million thank yous for having me today. Thanks for listening to the Rural Woman Podcast, a proud member of the Positively Farming Media Podcast Network. The Rural Woman Podcast is more than just a podcast. We are a community. A huge thank you to the Rural Woman Podcast team, audio editor Max Hofer, and admin support from Kim and Co. Online. A special thanks to our Patreon executive producers, Sarah Reedner from Happiness by the Acre and Carrie Munven from Laystone Farms. To learn how you can become a Patreon executive producer or other ways to financially support the show, head on over to wildrosefarmer.com to learn more. Be sure to hit the follow or subscribe button wherever you listen to the podcast to get the latest episodes directly on your playlist. And if you are loving the show, please be sure to leave a rating and review on Apple Podcasts or any other platform that accepts ratings and reviews. You can connect with us on social media at The Rural Woman Podcast and with me at Wild Rose Farmer. One of the best ways you can support the show is by sharing it. Send this episode to a friend or share on your social media. Let's strengthen and amplify the voices of women in agriculture together. Until next time, my friend. 
keep sharing your story. 